In the past 10 years, we have witnessed a major shift in global financial behavior. The adoption of digital payments has skyrocketed, becoming an integral part of how we conduct transactions worldwide. This transaction to digital has opened up new pathways for convenience and accessibility for both business and consumer. However, this rapid advancement has not been without drawbacks. We're seeing an increase in attack services, creating a fertile ground for fraud. Indeed, we are now experiencing record levels of fraud, a stark reminder of the vulnerabilities inherent in our digital financial ecosystem. Interestingly, while payment solutions have evolved at an accelerated pace, secure identity verification and fraud detection tools have lagged. The speed of change in the payment sector has outpaced the tools we have to ensure sufficient safeguards. Welcome to IQT Explains, a series on the IQT podcast where we explore technology trends and their impact on national security to provide insights and unique perspectives from thought leaders within IQT. I'm your host, Vishal Sandesera, and today we're going to explore new capabilities in fintech. Joining me on the show today are my two colleagues, Rita Waite and Ming Lo. Rita is a principal on IQT's investments team, primarily focused on AI and fintech investments in enterprise software companies. And prior to working at IQT, Rita was an investor with both Juniper Networks Venture Arm and Samapa Next VC. And she led payments and strategy and innovation at Millennium BCP. Ming is a vice president within our enterprise technology practice, where he investigates emerging technology spaces, including financial and identity intelligence and agile IT infrastructure. And prior to joining IQT, Ming was a research engineer at BAE Systems, focused on wireless networking and cyber ops technologies. Rita Ming, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank Michelle. you, Michelle. So before we uh, sort of dig into the nuts and bolts of, uh, of a lot of the great research you've done in the fintech space, why don't we first sort of start with uh, just, you know, why is looking into this space even important in the first place? For our listeners who might not be familiar with, uh, with what fintech is and perhaps how it already is a part of their lives, why don't we start with just a quick uh, overview of why this topic is important and why you all did some research. And Rita, we'll start with you. Absolutely. Um, so the way that we think about fintech, which is really financial technology, is that um, the penetration of digital uh, digital payments uh, globally has really changed the way that we interact with money, right? And um, financial services are fundamental to the way that the economy works, and uh, it's part of our everyday life. And over the last sort of 10 years, like you were alluding to, we have seen this massive adoption uh, of digital payments, and that has changed the landscape. And we find that, you know, the being able to ensure that these new technologies are still safe and secure and allow us to, you know, continue to, you know, su support um, uh, its growth, it was important for us to look at and say, okay, so how has this landscape evolved, right? We went from, you know, a financial crisis where um, that led to the growth of all these companies building alternatives to, um, uh, to, to traditional banking, right? We saw, you know, from 2008 to 2018, just a massive growth. And then since um, since then, we had a pandemic that massively accelerated the adoption of these uh, tools. And now all of a sudden we have maturity, right? We have maturity and adoption, right? Like, so tools are were secure enough for folks to start to use it. But now that we've reached scale, that's opened up a whole new set of threats, a whole new set of, you know, different considerations, different regulatory environment. And so it was important for us to think through, okay, if this is all changing, how does this impact 
um, our government partners? How does this impact um, our everyday lives? And sort of took a stab at uh, looking at that. That's great. And Ming, Rita mentions, you know, uh, sort of a, a catalyst for the, the expansion of the industry. And uh, she mentions the, the pandemic as, as one of those. Uh, I certainly know from my own personal experiences, I relied heavily on uh, cashless payments uh, during the course of the pandemic. But maybe a little bit prior to then, what were some of the catalysts that you saw in your research uh, to the, the growth that this industry saw, you know, prior to, say, 2020? Yeah, absolutely. Well, ultimately, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it comes down to convenience, right? Um, what people are really looking to do is just live their lives, right? And if there exists an easy and convenient way to help them live their lives in a more comfortable way, they'll go for it, right? Um, and that's what's really happened with the digitalization of our financial services, right? It, it's a it's it's a slow trans um, transformation starting from more in-person services and, and actual handwritten entries, checks, so on and so forth, right? And we've really digitalized that into the mobile form, right? So now you can pay with your phone, you can pay um, maybe even with your face in, in some cases, right? Just showing your face. Um, these are really nice conveniences and it really does require the underlying technology to provide both the convenience and the security because that convenience can quickly sabotage you and turn into something that just allows other people to steal your money. Yeah. So in your research, I know that you both spent a lot of time sort of thinking about and, and reflecting on the growth uh, of this industry over the last decade and perhaps even beyond. And um, I believe you came up with sort of there's, there's phases, you know, there's sort of a versioning scheme that you've applied, you know, FinTech 1, FinTech 2.0, FinTech 3.0. Can we talk a little bit about uh, just at a high level what uh, what was important in each of those phases and, and maybe even talk a little bit thereafter about where, where we might be headed uh, just shortly into the future? And Rita, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I alluded to it a little bit in the beginning, but we had a financial crisis in 2008, right? And so that led to what we call our, you know, the rise of new fintech platforms. So you can think of the Stripes. Uh, it was when Bitcoin was actually launched. Uh, uh, Wise, which at the time was TransferWise for international cross-border transfer. So this this growth of alternatives to traditional banking and a new launch of, you know, mobile wallets and crypto. So that was sort of your fintech 1.0. Um, and then from 2008 to 2023, uh, or sorry, 2018 to 2023 is what we call fintech 2.0, right? And so this to us is the global adoption of, um, of digital payments where it's more convenient, it's more accessible technology. Um, you have mobile and contactless payments, just like Ming was referring to where, um, you can pay with Apple Pay, Google Pay, and it grew beyond just their initial markets, right? So these these couple of years were crucial, and you know you reached a point where four point four billion global digital payment users in the world uh, in 2023. So we got to this point where all right, now we have you know adoption. And so we get to today, which is where we're, we're calling sort of the fintech uh, 3.0, which is very much, you know, fintech maturity. We have the penetration of digital payments, but then we also have record fraud. We got to that sweet spot of convenience, enough convenience and uh, enough security to make it happen. But now it's changing the way that um, the landscape looks, right? So we expect to see more consolidation in the space, uh, new data governance uh, policies. It, it really matters how you do that. Uh, regulation has deferred very variously across the globe. And so for us, it's sort of this you 3.0 view of, all right, now that we're here, how do we ensure that it's secure? How do we ensure that you know convenience doesn't trump security? And we can continue to sort of 
move forward and continue to use these um, technologies without giving up, uh, you know, something, right? Like fraud over the last um, five years has grown dramatically, right? We're, we've reached record fraud this year. And it's clear that it's not happening on the, uh, the physical card present um, transactions. It's on the online ones, right? So be it through credit cards online, buy now, pay later schemes. Obviously, you have crypto as a additional uh, segment to that. But it's just it, it's just a new world. And now we need to ensure that all these technologies that we've built over the last 10 years can be used securely. And Ming, before you comment, I, I want to sort of uh, pepper in uh, the fact that, you know, long before uh, financial technology companies, long before fintech people, uh, some of our listeners even may remember days where you paid uh, perhaps with cash or with, or with credit card in person. You know, there was no smartphone there to sort of aid in or complete a transaction. Um, question to you, Ming, how, how much of um, what we foresee as pot potential safeguards uh, in, in, the, uh, in the face of all this ever-increasing availability of fintech solutions, how many of the safeguards that we look to apply now are just re rinse and repeat versions of the safeguards that we've already put into place? In other words, reinventing the wheel, is it really necessary or can we sort of rely on age-old methods we've been using since before digitization um, for safeguards? Uh, I'll ask you that first and Reid, I'd love to hear your comments on that thereafter. Awesome. So I would say this is definitely a very mixed bag, right? You can win, rinse and repeat certain things. And in most cases, by concept. So the concept of trying to protect access to, you know, an account, that comes from the whole like, hey, look, you know, there's there's a banking account, a checking account opened at, at an actual bank location, right? You can ab abstract that up from there to a purely electronic um, type construct with like, you know, just a website account, right? Um, and still keep trying to secure that using the same analogies. But once you start opening up cyberspace, something that is globally prevalent, right? Something that, that has a global attack surface, it becomes much more interesting. And some of the old paradigms that we could rely on become flawed, right? In the end, everything is a cat and mouse game that will just perpetually go on and on, right? Um, but ultimately, it's about adapting to the actual space you're working in previously largely a physical space and now largely a, a an electronic and digital space where things definitely do run by absolutely different rules. Rita, same question, your perspective. Yeah, I, I think just to build on that, if, if we take even identity, which was a big part of the research that we, we did, is how do you verify that you are you, right? Like, how do you ensure that you are the person that you say you are? Where before you would go into a physical location, you verify with your document, and you might even do a, a one-time passcode to your mobile phone, get an SMS, and that's how you did it. But when you're doing all of this digitally, there has to be more, right? There has to be an added layer where you, you know, it's not just about you, it's about your device. It's about your identity online and what is your behavior. So you start to see, um, or not to see, but to need more touch points to verify you because it's just so easy to pretend that you're not, right? Like you can spoof a cell phone number. You can, you know, come up with brute force addresses that'll work on that credit card that you also sort of, guess, you know, and brute force through. Um, so it does change. I, I think that to the to the question of can you just use the same? It, it's not enough. Understood. You both have touched on this concept of identity. And we're going to talk a lot about, uh, you know, the need for adequate ID and, and fraud detection tools. But before we dig into that, just when we're thinking about identity, uh, you know, oftentimes you think about a financial transaction, and, um, you know, 
my naive senses tell me there's really two people at play. There's a person who's paying and then there's a person who's receiving. But you both have uncovered uh, a whole host of characters in between, especially mm -hmm. when you're thinking about digital solutions. Let's talk a little bit about how we move money and and who moves money when we're when we're when we're thinking about fintech. Um, and you know, maybe we'll I'll address that to Ming first, and then Rita, I'd love to hear your thoughts thereafter. That's that's an excellent question. So traditionally, we're very used to using centralized um, uh, authorities to to help us move money around, right? When you think back to um, to ancient times with the Knights Templar <clears throat> helping with uh, the concept of of having a bank account and being able to to um, take put money in and take money out later from a different location, um, that was a trusted central party helping you out with that. We've expanded upon that, of course, beyond just the purely physical to electronic forms of that same concept. But more recently, starting, you know, around uh, 2009 is when we started injecting really interesting new concepts like decentralized currencies, like cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, so on and so forth, right? Purely electronic, purely decentralized with no uh, trusted authority to actually handle the processing of these transactions and also the recording of these transactions. So there really is a wide um, attack surface when it comes to some of these new concepts, which is why, to Rita's point, um, we can't protect them in the same way that we've done in the past, right? The spirit is there. Like, you need to protect the identities of people involved in these transactions. You need to give them the ability to send the money. Um, but you also have to protect the fact that you don't want anyone to be spending your money, especially when everything is literally, totally, 100% on the internet. Yeah, and I just, uh, I would add just how different payments are globally, right? I think that, you know, so what do, what we're traditionally used to in terms of whether it's card networks, right? Your visas, your MasterCards, or it's your account, like your bank account, you do ACH and um, you have real-time payments um, through account-based as well, or through your smartphones or traditional cell phones uh, and on cellular networks. These are all the ways that we're sort of like used to paying. Like those are the rails that run underneath. And what we're seeing now is a continued growth in that, right? So you have hyper-localized payment rails for regions. And then you also have to have that interoperate with your global rails because again, payments are global by nature. And so it's a it's an incredibly complex um, space and uh, full of very, you know, very different intricacies for each different region. Got it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I would add that because of, of the the diversity across the globe, what that really means for us is that when we go back to what you were talking about with the FinTech 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 concept, right? Just breaking it up, up into, uh, into phases. It's important to remember that the entire globe runs by its own schedule. So there are definitely parts of the globe that are farther along down that, that path. And there are other parts that not, may not be as far. Um, and also those cycles actually do cycle internally. So you might get full adoption on one particular type of technology. Think credit cards, right? Um, we're definitely as far as we're going to go with credit cards now, right? Um, and, and we're recycling on that. We're disrupting that. We're bringing in interesting new services and concepts like Venmo and, and Zelle and so on and so forth, right? And all of this while the rest of the world is running at, it, at its own pace. So it's really important to understand it's a global community and everyone doesn't necessarily march to um, everyone else's pace. 
So we spent we spent a fair bit of time talking about sort of uh, the the industry as a whole. I want and I know that you both have spent a lot of time thinking about and like taking a look at in your research uh, what's being done in providing solutions to fraud, solutions to identity, uh, and building trust, building a sort of a foundational layer of trust in some of these tools and, and um, utilities that we've all become accustomed to over the last couple of years. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're seeing. You know, what are some of the techniques that you're seeing uh, companies develop uh, to sort of further along the, the the objective of becoming more safe online for, for their consumers? Uh, and also, so what, what's coming down the pike? Like, what, what are some of the things that aren't quite there yet, but but you anticipate will be there to, again, make people like myself and our listeners feel safe about using some of these tools. Rita, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I'll take just one step back and and think about what is driving fintech as a whole, right? So when you look at um, the private market and financial investment into uh, fintech, right? So VCs investing in startups, um, it's very much driven by the opportunity that exists for bringing the underbanked and unbanked online, right? So it's, it's being able to serve those that community and technology can do that really well, right? And so in 2021, we had record level investment into fintech, um, $140 billion or so that year, which was obviously an abnormal year. Uh, we're back down to sort of, you know, half of that, but it's still most that we've ever seen over the last 10 years, right? And so there's just this massive opportunity on the fundamentals of still bringing better solutions to bring the unbanked, underbanked online. So that's the primary driver on sort of the commercial side. I think fraud and identity, and that's a component of it, right? So it's sort of like, now that we have these solutions, how do we do that? Um, and I'll let me comment on some of the um, other techniques, but you know, the, there's a lot that has to do with uh, behavior. So how you, you know, identifying user behavior, being able to do pattern matching, be able to com- complete a profile of who you are and the device that you have that is much more robust than just, you know, like we talked about, like sort of like your ID and just a phone number, right? Um, and as we look at sort of the the market more broadly, it is really impressive to see just how much, you know, payments evolved. And now we're seeing that happen with fraud and identity coming right behind it, right? And so that's sort of like the trends, at least, that we've identified in, in looking at this space. But Ming, I'll let you sort of go through the the down the pipe piece. Yeah. So what I would say is don't forget, this goes back to the prime principles of what are the financial services actually trying to protect. What they're really trying to secure are, I need you to identify who you are so that I can work on your behalf, right? Um, and then, of course, working on your behalf. Am I helping you ch- uh, send money? Am I helping you take a loan? Am I helping you get insurance, right? It's all about establishing who you are first and then allowing you to come back to access your account or whatever it is that you're trying to access um, going forward into the future so that you can get service, right? So ultimately, the interesting new techniques that people have been using have been around identifying, hey, is this Ming Lo coming to you and trying to access, well, number one, trying to open an online account, trying to access that online account again next week, and then being able to use that online account to pay someone, to pay Rita some money that that he owes her, right? Um, all of the interesting techniques that we're seeing around there are how do you figure out who Ming is and then get high assurance that it's in fact still Ming on the other side when you're really com- coming across a wire, across the, dinner, uh, across the internet through a fully digital um, type of, of footprint. Yeah. 
Because I was just going to say like very quickly, it's just, it's sort of, if you look at the challenges you still exist today, it comes even to a very basic level, right? One of the challenges that merchants have, right, is that the acceptance rate on the credit cards are low, right? And different regions have different rates, but that's still like the primary thing is, hey, this card didn't work online and I am me, like this is my, my account, but it was declined at the merchant because they weren't able to correctly assess the risk. Or if you want to make a transaction that is, whether it's cross-border or internal, uh, like domestic, how do you get that done? And today there's still pieces of that that require you to sign a piece of paper, put it back into your doc, like, you know, and it, those are the things that you're still trying to move forward. Because at the end of the day, this is all about risk, right? It's risk assessment is how much, how much risk am I willing to take on each and every one of these transactions, not just financial transaction, but account opening maintaining the account, adding someone else to your account. And so even in those friction points, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of, um, you know, giving us a better experience and being able to secure um, that component of it. I see. Both of you made mention of, uh, you know, things you've seen sort of on a regional basis. And I know that you both have also done quite a bit of research internationally, you know, thinking about the the fintech industry um, and the capabilities that are coming to bear sort of from a, from a global trends perspective. As we, as we sort of shift outside of just regions and think more, more globally, um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, what we're seeing um, in this industry and, and from where outside of the globe. You know, what are some of the things that are most compelling to other nations? Um, Ming, I think earlier you had made mention of, you know, the U.S. has done great with credit cards and we've sort of, I think, expanded the, the abilities and capabilities there. Um, but what about other countries and who are some of the primary players uh, leading the charge on, on other um perspective or other parts of this industry. And maybe we'll start with Ming and then Rita. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, other regions, um, really fast um, region to mention would be Europe. Um, there's a lot of acceptance of bank account based um, uh, payments uh, applications. Basically, you have your bank app, right? And you can pay your friend through your bank app. Um, uh, in Europe, that's highly accepted. In addition, to credit cards. Um, when you think in in uh, specific parts of Asia, basically China, right? You have Alipay, you have WeChat Pay, right? Those are highly accepted. When you go down to the 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 um, Indochina area, um, you have uh, other apps like Grab, which have a which are essentially their version of Uber, um, and uh, and with that comes a Grab Pay app, and those are locally very well accepted. It really comes down to what makes the most sense for your region um, based off of acceptance and networks that these services have built. And um, when you do try to work across the different networks, that's where you really actually run into a lot of regulatory hurdles. That's why credit cards are on average one of the more accepted payment methods when you think internationally, even though there are plenty of places that it's just not very welcome in, right? Um, but it's had the most time for a lot of these different services to work its way through the regulatory hurdles such that they actually have the ability to go across global borders. I see. Yeah. And I'd, I'd add to that, that, you know, a lot of this is driven again by, uh, you know, local regulation, right? So in the U S we have the approach of sort of less regulation, but visa and mastercard, the main card networks, even, but Amex and discover also, uh, also U S they're the leaders globally for credit card networks, right? So if you think of Europe as the example, right, the primary reason why they have such a push towards account-based payments is because there is no Amex in, or 
MasterCard or Visa that's European, right? And so they want to protect that as well, because at the end of the day, it is a financial decision and you you are relying on a foreign, like multiple foreign entities to move money in your region. And so they've passed a lot of regulation to push account to account based payments. They've also pushed a lot of regulation, which is what drove a lot of the innovation fintech in Europe over the last couple of years, which is different than other segments of the economy. Like it's it's not the same in other um, in other areas. And that's pushed them to, you know, have a different approach to these solutions. Right. So for them, security, like securing the customer has been a huge push, right? So if you want to make a transaction online in Europe, you can't just put your credit card number and your transaction is done. You're going to get a push notification to your banking app to validate that. And that's that's a regulation, right? And so the, it's a different approach. It has its drawbacks, right? Credit cards in Europe are capped. Like the fees on your credit on um, on credit cards are capped. And that makes it so you can't have all the benefits and all the additional services on top of card networks that you have in the U.S. And that's just to show like the dynamics of um, the ecosystem and how much it plays from government regulation to users and and the fintechs and developers, where China, on the other hand, like completely jumped that entire sort of space and went straight to mobile payments and have, you know, the, the apps that Ming mentioned, right, they you live your life in that app in a way for being able to get your services, make your payments within that ecosystem. Um, and then you obviously have regions that are still developing, like what, what is going to be their main form uh, of payment? And, um, and it varies widely, right? In Latin America, there's still a lot of credit cards, but it's fragmented. There's local rails. Uh, in, in Africa, the difference between the countries are massive. And so I think it's just... Um, it's interesting because you you have all this diversity, all these different incentives, but then they all have to work together, right? Because you you need to do cross border payments, and so it's it's really fascinating. And and we've seen that you know it, the, there's a lot of roles to be played from both government and the private sector. Rita, you made mention of you know where we how how sort of the the international or the global competition sort of stacks up. I, I suppose in terms of you know what pushes what what are market drivers uh, and where where the current state of affairs are and in terms of the capabilities offered. I know that you you've also spent some time thinking about this from the same security or fraud prevention or identity lens that you thought about um, the U.S. Uh, fintech industry. Where I guess my question to you would be, how are those kind how how are we doing globally in terms of uh, preventing fraud and, and protecting consumers internationally? And where does the U.S. sort of rank, uh, you know, are we, are we as good as a lot of the, uh, the stuff that's out there globally? Are we, are we sort of trailing behind? Love your perspectives on that. Yeah, I think it's a great question. There's uh, the, the part that I think is really interesting and what Ming and I found is that most of these startups, whether it be in identity and fraud or payments, they think global first, right? So if you can secure a payment here, you need to be able to secure it somewhere else as well. And so there's this uh, global first perspective, which puts us, you know, very high on the ranking, like still the biggest fintechs in the world are still US, like we're still leading the way in terms of both dollars funded and companies created. Um, and so even though we might not have like the regulation here, we still have to be able to um, abide by the regulation somewhere else. And so it's a really interesting dynamic in terms of um, how these companies uh approach this because they have to be global first. And so I think that to answer your question, 
it's great to see because you you really do have that independent of where the company is based. That's great. And Ming, you know, I had a, a quick discussion um, about just regulation, you know, uh, outside of this podcast. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your perspectives on, you know, U.S. perspectives, certainly, but also globally. What are we seeing in terms of regulatory bodies that are governing, you know, some of the, the, the applications and the growth that we're seeing in, these in, this, in this industry, both in the U.S. and also internationally? Yeah. So what I would say there is um, it is, of course, very different from region to region. Right. Um, and to some of the earlier points that we made, things come in waves. Right. So when you think about the modern landscape, the concept of KYC, know your customer, the concept of having anti-money laundering processes in place to protect your services from being used by nefarious folks. Um, a lot of that was pioneered, like the formalized um, uh, policy side was formalized within the U.S. as some of the newer services came out. When I say newer, I mean, you know, bank accounts, credit cards, so on and so forth, right? Um, we blaze a trail a lot in that area. And then we stood back a little bit and enjoyed some of the fruits of our labors. Um, and since then, we definitely see Europe really forging ahead hard on um, interesting new areas like formally protecting user privacy, privacy of their data, privacy of their identities, so on and so forth. And we see a lot of the interesting pieces being implemented in, in Europe. And you'll see how it actually goes from policy down to execution when you think about something as simple as credit cards being protected by um, the chip that comes in modern credit cards, right? In Europe, they use a chip in addition to enforcing that you have a pin to go with that chip, giving them a belt and suspenders approach to that, that protection, right? So that's policy working in addition to the technologies coming from individual companies, meaning the, the ones that make the credit cards, giving you a more protected product. Whereas in the US, simply having the card allows you to use the money, which doesn't prevent someone from pickpocketing your credit card, running off and spending with it. So it's definitely important to have policy go together with the industry and the technology in order to make sure that you secure things in the most convenient and, and still um, usable fashion. You know, you've got me thinking a little bit about how this all relates to consumer behavior or just personal behavior. Uh, this, imagine if credit card, you know, the chip and pin model that you, that you, that you talked about, uh, I find that to be a very, very robust and, and a relatively simple system um, to secure a credit card. Imagine if you lose your credit card, uh, which has happened to me, I've misplaced my wallet or my credit card a number of times. Imagine the, 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 the less, or, or like the, the, the reduced amount of anxiety I would have if I knew that, oh, well, you know, this card is, it's probably floating around somewhere, but it's relatively useless without some of the information that I carry about it in my head. Um, I imagine that that would create a, a, a lot more soothing experience about uh, having to call my credit card company <laughs> and, and uh, complain about my missing card and not having to feel like I have to defend any and all transactions that have taken place beyond a certain time. Yeah. And, and I will add that it, it's actually a relatively flimsy protection in the sense that Stealing your pin is actually not all that hard, especially with like the ubiquitous surveillance that comes with modern society, right? But it is a meaningful layer of protection that they added in conjunction with their policies that was really useful. Um, it need, these kind of ele evolutions need to come faster, of course, um, but it is nuanced and it is actually meaningful. Yep. 
Um, you know, we're almost at time. I want to switch to the tips and tricks section of our discussion. And the tips and tricks section is dedicated to helping our listeners feel safe uh, and secure about their use of uh, some of the tools that uh, we've discussed today, the various fintech tools. I'd love to uh, open the floor for tips and tricks from either of you. What do we do out there to stay safe? You know, what are some general practices? What are some things to keep in the back of our mind? Uh, as inevitably, this industry will continue to throw out more and more useful and more convenient things that we use in our daily lives. Uh, Read over to you for that first. Yeah, I think so. One thing is that I've noticed there's a huge change is like even on your banking app, and this was driven 100% by the neo banks, was that you can now do a lot of the security management on your phones. Like you can disable your card or you can uh, create a virtual card just for that online transaction. Um, but in terms of tips and tricks, and like where I think that we're seeing a lot of the fraud come from are scams, right? And so like, getting a text message to, you know, give up information or um, getting an email that is signed by your boss uh, asking you to, you know, go buy some gift cards. And I think that it's really just the, a lot of it comes to sort of a little bit like common sense, but also just, just be extra careful in those instances. Like your bank is probably not going to ask you for any sensitive information through an email, through a text message. Um, But um, other than that, I do think that we at least have the protection of, you know, since especially here in the U.S. where you're using cards, there is that extra safety that, you know, you can call your bank and you can, you know, report sort of fraudulent activity pretty easily, which is nice. Yeah. I think one of the most enduring best practices still remains have good passwords. More and more, you'll see that people don't rely on them as much with respect to the services that they have, right? There's, there's uh, two-factor authentication. There's, um, there's additional factors. There are different ways to, to sign yourself back in again that aren't actually requiring passwords, right? But ultimately, there's a core set of services that underpin your safety on the internet, and they all require good passwords. Don't use one-word dictionary uh, words to, to be your password. It's, it's not as easy to remember, but it is the, the, uh, the underpinnings of your security on the internet. Very good. Uh, to our listeners, if either of you, uh, if any of you have a 0000 or a 123456 as your password, let Ming's words be resonated clearly and uh, and soundly change that immediately. Uh, and to Rita's point, uh, you know, some, some cases of fraud, uh, sometimes making a phone call to your bank is probably your best bet. Rita, Ming, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. On behalf of our listeners, we appreciate the research you've done and uh, the insights you've gleaned on us today. And to our listeners, thank you all for tuning in to today's episode of IQT Explains on the IQT Podcast. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT Podcast so you don't miss out on future content and leave us a review or a comment to let us know what you think or what content you'd be interested to see us cover on a future podcast. I also encourage you to check out IQT's website at www.iqt.org. Uh, to explore more content about cutting-edge technology um, to support and deliver insights and capabilities essential for national security and mission impact. I bid you adieu, and yet again, to our guests, Rita and Ming, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you all next time. Mm